Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now beginning to take up the study of Acts chapter 2. We're going to do the first 13 verses. Our context is this. In the last chapter, Acts chapter 1, the first part of the chapter, we had Jesus ascending and telling the disciples to go wait in Jerusalem. The disciples went to Jerusalem, met an upper room, and replaced Judas with Matthias. And now we are here in Acts 2, verse 1. The disciples are in Jerusalem after having chosen Matthias. 120 disciples, by the way, not just the 12. At least we think that well, there were 120 people in the upper room where uh, Matthias was chosen as Judas's replacement, most probably. So that's where we are. We start with Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, Pentecost is 50 days after the Saturday after Passover, the Passover Sabbath. And in the context of Jesus's crucifixion, Jesus ate the Passover supper Thursday night, which of course was really Friday morning according to the Jewish calendar, which was the 16th of Nisan, excuse me, the 15th of Nisan, which was Passover that year. And then the next day, the Sabbath, which would have been Friday night and Saturday up until sunset, that was Passover Sabbath. And that's when you started counting. You counted seven Saturdays after that. And then you add one day, seven Saturdays is 49 days, you add one day, and there you are. You're right there at Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, 50 days after Passover Sabbath. I have been saying it's 50 days after the resurrection because Jesus was raised just right after Passover Sabbath. He was raised early Sunday morning. So the Passover Sabbath had passed just by a couple hours. So that was a little bit of imprecision in, in there, but it's close enough. It's just a few hours off. So basically, we're going to say 50 days after the resurrection, we're at Pentecost. Now, all the rules for when Pentecost is to be established are in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 16. Let me read that for you. You are to count seven complete weeks starting from the day after the Sabbath, the day you bought the sheaf of the presentation offering. So that means Sabbath, uh, of Passover, then the next day, or the, excuse me, not the next day, but the next Sabbath that rolled around uh, would be the Passover Sabbath. And then from there you would take, a, you would, the people gave a sheaf of a grain offering, a presentation offering it to the temple, and then the, the 49 days started counting. You were to count 50 days, I'm continuing in Leviticus, you were to count 50 days until the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. That's at the end of the 50 days, one before and one after you presented new grain. All right, so that's in the Bible. Now, one thing confusing about this festival, it's got three different names. That's three different names in addition to Pentecost, so that's four different names. So let's look at the NIV Study Bible's exposition of these three names. First of all, it was called the Feast of Weeks. That's in Deuteronomy 16.10. You are to celebrate the Festival of Weeks, says says Moses. You are to celebrate the Festival of Weeks to the Lord your God with a free will offering. Festival of Weeks. Why was it called Weeks? Because it was seven weeks from Passover to to the Festival of Weeks. It was also called the Feast of Harvest, according to the NIV Study Bible, Exodus 23:16. Also, says Moses, observe the Festival of Harvest with the first fruits of your produce from what you sow in the field. So this, har- this festival was a harvest festival. They, they brought in the wheat crop somewhere in early June, and that's where the festival was. And so after they brought the crop in, they had a big feast. It's also called the, well, here's a fifth name. Observe the festival of ingathering. This is right here in Deuteronomy 20, in Exodus 23:16. Observe, 
Let me just read the whole verse again. Observe the festival of harvest. That's the second name. With the first fruits of your produce from what you sow in the field. And observe the festival of the ingathering. Capital F, capital I. My home and Christian study Bible. At the end of the year when you gather your produce from the field. So there's another name. All right, so let's recap here. I said there were three other names. Actually, there are four other names. Five names altogether for this one festival. No wonder nobody knows when it occurred. We've already mentioned Pentecost in Acts 2 verse 1. Deuteronomy 16.10 calls it the Festival of Weeks. You're to celebrate the Festival of Weeks. Why? Because it was seven weeks after Passover. Exodus 23.16 calls it the Feast of Harvest and the Festival of Ingathering. It was also called the Day of First Fruits. This is name number five. In Numbers 28.26, on the Day of First Fruits, you're to hold a sacred assembly when you present an offering of new grain to the Lord at your Festival of Weeks. It was called First Fruits because they they would take the first fruits of that gathered in harvest and present it to the Lord to show that all of the harvest belonged to the Lord, not just the first fruits, but the first fruits was a symbol of the whole harvest. And so sometimes it was called the day of first fruits. So there's five names for you, but that's neither here nor there. That's just to keep us from getting confused. But what the interesting thing is, is the symbolism. We got Jesus, the Passover lamb, sacrificed on, on Passover. That, of course, carried out the symbolization of the Passover lamb who was slain at Passover, and they sprinkled, the Israelites sprinkled the blood while they were down in Egypt. They sprinkled the blood over the lintel of the doorpost so that the angel of death flying over the door would not kill them. And so they were rescued from the wrath of God and protected from the wrath of God, just like Jesus' death on the cross at Passover rescues us from the wrath of God. All right, so that symbolism is pretty good. Now we go 50 days later at the festival of harvest, the festival of ingathering. And guess what's happening there? you got all the crops are brought in, just like, now why is that appropriate for a day, why is that an appropriate day for the Holy Spirit to fall? Because the Holy Spirit was to fall to give them power to witness and to bring in the sheaves, to bring in the harvest. The harvest of all Christians who are coming into the church started right there at Pentecost. And so the symbolism is great. And that symbolism has often been overlooked. I've never had anybody point it out to me until I started digging in these old commentaries. Now it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, in verse 1, Acts 2, they were all together in one place. Who are the they? We don't know. Here's two options. NIV Study Bible mentions both. It could be just the 11 apostles plus Matthias. The apostles were all together in one place. Now that would mean that the Holy Spirit fell only on 12 people instead of 120 people. The other option is it's all the 120 who were mentioned as being gathered in the upper room in Acts 1 to find a replacement for Judas that same 120 who chose Matthias. That's in Acts 1.15. During these days, Peter stood up among the brethren, among the brothers. The number of people who were together was about 120. Which is it? Well, the NIV Study Bible says it's probably the 120. Gill says it's definitely 120. Clark says it's probably 120. And how you decide that is depends on a lot of things, like... How do we decide where that one place was that they were gathered together? If that one place is that same upper room where they chose Matthias, well, how's 120 people going to fit together in one room? That might make you think it's only 12 together in one room. However, there's a lot of people think that that one place that they gathered together was not the upper room, but was rather the temple. The argument's a little bit intricate and complex and interesting. We'll examine them as we get to them. Well, let's, let's examine it right now. The NIV Study Bible suggest and Adam Clark says it's probably true that the the disciples, whether twelve or hundred and twenty, those disciples met someplace in the temple precincts. 
Why does the NIV Study Bible say that? Because the apostles were continually at the temple when it was open, Luke 24, 53, and they were continually in the temple complex, praising God. Acts 2, 46, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex. All right, so that's your first option. They were meeting, they were all gathered together in one place in the temple courts somewhere. The other option is they were gathered together in the upper room where they were staying. And that, of course, is in the previous chapter where they chose Matthias. Now, the NIV Study Bible, they say that this upper room was evidently not the place. Evidently? Now, I wonder how they know this. Now, you've got to do some fancy thinking here because there's arguments on both sides of the issue, whether it's the upper room or not. I remember I was in a a building at some kind of Bible museum somewhere. I think it was in Dallas about 40 years ago. I can't remember. And they had a mural of the Holy Spirit falling on people, and they had a reenactment, and it was it was pretty neat. And the one thing I noticed was is that it was in the temple. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I thought the Holy Spirit fell on those apostles in the upper room. Well, these people that built this museum thought it was in the temple. They are good arguments for that, and we'll look at them right now. And these arguments come from the NIV Study Bible. Well, actually, the NIV Study Bible doesn't give any arguments. I'm going to give you arguments to back up their position in just a minute. The problem with saying that the place where they gathered together was in the temple is in the very next verse. Acts 2.2 says, Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. Well, that sounds like the upper room, because upper room's in a house. Well, the NIV Study Bible says, well, yeah, yeah, but... The temple of God is often referred to as a house, the house of the Lord. Acts 7, 47, but it was Solomon who built him a house. So that's how they get around that problem. Well, let's look at some other arguments as to why it's the temple complex and not an upper room in a house. Well, first of all, if you assume an upper room cannot hold 120 people, because that's too many people back then for a house, and that's questionable, but let's assume that you can only get 12 people in there, and there was only 12 male apostles in there. Because all the, if, it was, if it was only the apostles who were in the upper room, they were all men. We know that. But Joel, Joel's famous prophecy, which is cited by Peter in verses 17 and 18, Joel predicted that the Holy Spirit would fall on women too. He said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. He said, I will pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves. There were no women in the upper room. Now, I think that's a weak argument in favor of the temple because Joel's prophecy could very well have been filled, fulfilled outside of the upper room. It could have been fulfilled after the Holy Spirit fell in the upper room, and then the Holy Spirit also fell on all the crowds outside, and that's what Joel was talking about. So that's not the strongest argument, in my humble opinion. But here's the strong argument. If the Holy Spirit fell in an upper room, that's a private house. In verse 6, we read that the whole crowd heard the disciples speaking in unknown tongues. How are they going to hear, hear that? How are they going to hear that if the disciples are in an upper room? Now, some people say, well, there's, I think it's John Gill said that, well, there's a rushing sound of wind. They could have heard the wind blow through the sound like a wind outside of the room, and then they could have rushed over there. Well, no, I don't think so. How are they going to get up there to hear what's going on? It's a private house. So I think there's a strong argument that the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples, all 120 of them, or you want to say 12. I don't care, either, whichever way it is. It was in the temple complex. It wasn't in the upper room. Well, anyway, that's sort of our side issue here. It's not really the most important issue. It's kind of interesting. They were all together in one place. That all together could mean all together physically, geographically, 
or it could mean altogether in one accord. And in fact, some translations do translate that with one accord. For example, the KGV, the Young's Little Translation, the Mace New Testament, the Wesley Translation, they were in one accord. Adam Clark says this, quote, Having but one desire, they had but one prayer to God, and every heart uttered it. There was no person uninterested, none unconcerned, none lukewarm. Warm. All were in earnest. That makes it a little bit more spiritual if you say they were all together mentally, spiritually, and emotionally in one place. But actually, I don't think that's what Luke meant. I think they were all physically located in one place. I don't think there's plenty of spiritual stuff in the Bible without making it more spiritual. We don't need to do that. Let's go to verse Acts 2.2. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were saying. Wind is the perfect symbol of the Holy Spirit because the Greek word for wind is neoma, which is exactly the same Greek word for spirit. Neoma, no difference. So it's perfect symbolism. So they had audible symbolism, auditory symbolism, and they also had physical, visual symbolism when they saw the tongues resting on the head. Fire kind of looks, when, when the flames divide, it kind of looks like a tongue, a divided tongue, I guess. We'll talk about that symbolism in the next verse. Right now, well, let's look at the the rushing wind. Notice that this was like a violent rushing wind, just like the Holy Spirit fell like a dove. It didn't say the Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove. It says like a dove. It was a, it was a metaphor, a simile, like a a sound like that of a rushing wind. So we don't know exactly what that sound was, but it was similar to the sound of a rushing wind. Doesn't mean that actually wind blew through the blew through the house and and blew all the candles out and and blew the and made their clothes start flapping. Not necessarily. It was just a sound. We need to be precise about these things and know what speculation and what's and distinguish speculation from what's actually stated. We go to verse three. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Fire kind of divides. If you think about the flickering peaks of fire, they divide because it divides into, into, into peaks. And so this is what it looked like, this flame that appeared over, over their heads. Now notice this is a one-off occurrence. It did not occur but one time in Acts. There are other four other places where people were filled with the Holy Spirit. There were no flames of fire. They were speaking in tongues. In fact, in five places. Four other places besides this, they were speaking in tongues, but no no visual sign of fire. So this is not a pattern that we should expect to be reproduced in the future. Now, the fact that the fire looked like tongues was an appropriate symbol, as NIV study Bible points out, because the tongues that was going to be spoken here in a minute to the, to the crowds, they were in strange tongues, and so the emphasis is on tongues, and fire, fire looks like tongues. So we got sound of wind, Holy Spirit, tongues as fire, Notice how the Holy Spirit and tongues go together. I know you all, you non-Pentecostals out there, don't like to hear that. Because unfortunately, a lot of the early Pentecostals said you had to be speaking in tongues in order to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's not true. You can be baptized in the Spirit without speaking in tongues. Everybody knows that now. But nonetheless, notice the symbolism here. We got wind, spirit, and we got tongues, fire. Holy Spirit and tongues going together, just like the symbolism works together. Now let's look at fire. How is fire usually used as a symbol in the New Testament? Three things. First of all, fire in the scripture can refer to the divine presence. This is per the NIV Study Bible. For example, Exodus 3.2. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. This is the famous burning bush episode. It was burning. Fire. God was there. Okay, presence of God. Exodus 19. 18. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. 
there's the presence of God at Mount Sinai as well as at the burning bush. Okay, so we could say that this fire that rested on the disciples was to show the disciples that God was present. I can, I can handle that. That fits in with the speaking in tongues incident quite nicely. Tongues can all, excuse me, fire can also mean in the scriptures judgment. Matthew 3.12, his winning, winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. This is John the Baptist speaking. But the chaff he will burn up with fire that never goes out. That's obvious. Judgment, nobody likes to get burned. But I don't see how that has anything to do with speaking in tongues. So I don't think that's what's applicable here. Fire can also mean purity, as John Gill says. Here's a quote. The Holy Spirit is compared to fire because of its, and it should be his, by the way. Well, I take it back. Because of its fire, purity, light, and heat, as well as consuming nature. The Spirit sanctifies and makes men pure and holy, purges from the dross of sin, error, and superstition, and enlightens the minds of men, and gives them knowledge of divine and spiritual things, and fills them with zeal and fervor for the glory of God in Christ. So the people being preached to would be purified by the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the idea of the symbolism, according to Gill. So either the divine presence or the purity that comes from the divine presence, that's what the fire symbol meant. We go to Acts 2.4. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, the they is either 12 or 120. I'm going to assume 120 in the temple complex. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages. Tongues is how the NIV translates that word for language. Holman Christian Study Bible has languages. They It's the same thing. They began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Now, Adam Clark makes an interesting observation. At the Tower of Babel, the languages were scattered and divided. And now at Pentecost, the people having scattered languages are all drawn together under one Spirit, under one Shepherd, under one Jesus. That's interesting. I don't, I don't know if it was meant to be that way by the Holy Spirit when he wrote the Scripture here, but it is interesting. It could be. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say it's next to certain that the speakers, next to certain, quote-unquote, next to certain that the speakers did not understand what they were saying. And I think Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are exactly alike. All right, uh, th that commentary cites 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 25, where Paul demands an interpreter for tongues. If these tongues were like the ones of 1 Corinthians 14, then you, those who are speaking in tongues don't understand what they're saying. Now, of course, you could say these are different kind of tongues than 1 Corinthians 14, but I think the burden of proof is high on people who would make that claim. Now, let's talk about the hearers because we, we assume that the speakers didn't know what they were speaking, but the hearers did. They were hearing the magnificent acts of God in their own language, as it says in Acts 11b. In Acts 2, 6, two verses later, it says this, When this sound occurred, either the sound of the rushing wind or the sound of the speaking in tongues, whatever, a crowd came together and was confused because each word heard them speaking in his own language. And if you hear a tongue in your own language, that means you understand it because it's your own language. And they heard the great acts of God. Now, this act is often used polemically, this fact is often used polemically by cessationists who will use the fact that the speakers heard the tongues in their own language, the secessionists will use that fact to invalidate modern-day glossolalia because they say, look, to speakers in tongues today don't, the, the hearers of, of tongue speakers today don't understand the language that's being spoken like the, like the languages were understood in Acts chapter 2. Therefore, present-day tongues aren't real. Well, the answer to that is very simple. If tongues are generally meant to be understood, why did Paul ask for interpretation? 1 Corinthians 14, 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, not intelligible, not understandable, how will you know 
what is said. 1 Corinthians 14, 13, Therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. Paul assumed that spoken languages could not be understood, either by the speaker or by the hearer. The answer to this is that this was a one-off event to get the church started in Pentecost, it was not meant to be a pattern. I, I believe in pattern theology, and if you can find a pattern in the New Testament, I don't care if it's not explicitly commanded by an apostle. I believe in following that pattern. House churches, Lord's Supper's a full meal, and all that. I believe in that. But I don't believe a one-off event like holding everything in common, for example. That's not a pattern. And speaking in tongues so that the hearers understand in their own native language is not a pattern. So I don't worry about it. It was a unique thing. I don't think that should be used against people who speak in tongues like John MacArthur, another cessationist. Now, I mentioned that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.4, and I said I'm assuming 120, but again, the opinions are divided on this. NIV Study Bible gives an argument for only being 12 apostles who were filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Here's an argument. The nearest antecedent is the apostles. The last verse in Acts chapter 1 says this, Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And then we go down into here to Acts chapter 2, a few verses later in verse 4. Then they, if you go by the rule the, or the general rule that the nearest antecedent is what a pronoun refers to, then the they would be the twelve. The apostles were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Another argument is not only from the antecedent in the previous chapter, but when you go to verse 14 in, in this chapter, chapter 2, the narrative continues with Peter and the 11 addressing the crowd. Peter stood up with the 11. It doesn't mention the 120. It just says the 11. I don't think that that's dispositive, those two arguments, because sometimes the, the, uh, pronouns do not refer to their most recent antecedent. Now, here's an argument that says that they all gathered together was the 120 brethren. This is from the NIV Study Bible. First argument is that this speaking in tongues fulfills Joel's prophecy. And Joel's prophecy can only be fulfilled if you assume there was 120 brethren there. Because the 120 brethren contained women. The apostles did not contain women. And Joel's prophecy said the Holy Spirit was going to fall on your sons and daughters and your, young, and your male and female slaves. As is quoted in... Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 from Joel. Sons and daughters, male and female slaves, weren't there in the upper room. However, I can counter that by saying, well, yeah, well, maybe the prophecy was fulfilled by the crowds, not by the people in the, in the the that were gathered together, the 12 or the 120, but it could be fulfilled by all the people who came for the festival there in Jerusalem. And that's how, in fact, I think that's what the verse does refer to, what the, Joel's prophecy does refer to. So that's a weak argument for saying that the all gathered together were the 120 brethren. Now, another argument is if you assume that the 120 were meeting in the upper room in a house, you could say, well, 120 people, how could they fit into the house? They couldn't, so goes the argument, and therefore the 120, therefore the people that were meeting would have been, would have been 120, not 12, meeting in the, in the temple, or at least it's most likely that they were. Well, the problem with that argument is 120 people might have been able to fit into an open room with no furniture, especially if the person's house was rich. That gets kind of complicated when you talk about the size of ancient houses. So I'm going to assume that we don't know who it is. I just feel like it was 120, brother, and I don't think the arguments NIV Study Bible uh, drags out in order to support that option are very convincing. However, I still believe it was 120, brother, not just the 12 apostles. But I can't be sure. 
Now they were filled with the Spirit. This, of course, was promised by Jesus to the apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. This is Jesus speaking at the right about the time, right before his ascension. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Just a few days later, Pentecost was going to occur, and you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which is the same thing as being filled, because that's what happened. In Acts chapter 2, it says they were filled. In this verse we're looking at now, verse 4, they were filled. And in uh, Acts chapter 1, 5, it says you will be baptized. So baptized and filled are the same thing. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's the verse that says you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. There's another phrase. You got filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit. In verse 8 in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit has come on you. Same thing. Luke 24, verse 49. And look, I am sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city till you are empowered from on high. The promise of the Father. Uh, empowerment from on high. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, being empowered from on high, powers come, the, the Holy Spirit comes on you, the promise of the Father, all that's referring to this event that, that we're reading about here in Acts. Now this essential act of baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit happened in four of the places in Acts. In Acts 8 with the Samaritans, in Acts 9 with the Apostle Paul, in Acts 10 with the Gentile converts in Cornelius' house in Caesarea, and in Acts 19 at Ephesus, I would point out to you in two of the other four occasions that I just mentioned, speaking in tongues explicitly followed the filling of the Holy Spirit, just like happened in Acts 2 at, in Jerusalem. And in other, that was in Acts 10 with Cornelius' house and Acts 19 with the disciples at Ephesus. And in the other two occasions, Acts 8 in Samaria, you can easily infer that speaking in tongues were occurred because in Acts 8, the false prophet Simon said, hey, he saw something. And then he says, give me this power. He saw what could he have seen, the people speaking in tongues. Acts 9 doesn't say in, in Acts 9 that Paul spoke in tongues, but later on in one of his letters to the Corinthians, he, he said, I speak in tongues more than you all, certainly more than John MacArthur. And as a result, we can infer that he spoke in tongues too, probably when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not conclusive, but you can make a case for that. So you see there's a connection between being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. So speaking in understood tongues is not a pattern, but speaking in tongues in general after the filling of the Holy Spirit, that is a pattern. And we're so much more blessed when we follow patterns in, in, in Acts than when we don't. Acts 2 verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. They were devout. That's why they were there at the festival. These were not your secular Jews, if, you, if I can use that phrase. These were practicing Jews. Why were there so many people staying in Jerusalem? Well, they were either current residents living there, as the NIV Study Bible says, or they were visitors. Why would there be so many Jews coming to Jerusalem? Well, there could be a lot of proselytes, you know, people doing business. They could have come to learn Hebrew. They could have come to learn more spiritual stuff, talk, learn from the rabbis. They could have been getting excited because they think the Messiah is about to set up the kingdom. But the real reason, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, in my opinion, this is it. They wanted to keep the Feast of Pentecost. As Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, the language seems to imply more than a temporary visit to keep this one feast. Living and staying is ambiguous. I know Chinese people always say, where are you living today? They mean, where are you staying in the hotel? They say, where are you living? Of course, living to the English here sounds like a long time. I don't know how the Greek does. It's probably just as ambiguous as the Chinese. Anyway, there was a lot of people in Jerusalem. We're going to assume it was for Pentecost. We go to verse 6. When this sound, either the sound of the rushing wind or the sound of the people speak of the 
disciples speaking in tongues. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And as I said earlier, I think it's hard to believe a crowd came together if the, if the rushing wind was in an upper room, in a private upper room. I think this was in the temple. Now, as I just said, the crowd was hearing in their own language a tongue spoken by a speaker who did not understand that language. And that's true. But there's an interesting thing here, too. Some of these people that were there must have spoken Aramaic because that was their native language. And some might have spoken Greek. Uh, maybe maybe some of them were hearing the gospel spoken in a natural language. This is just speculation. Maybe some of the apostles weren't speaking in tongues or they're speaking in their natural language. Anyway, it doesn't matter. They were all hearing the gospel. Now let's talk about this phenomenon that the hearers were hearing the gospel preached in their own language. Where was that miracle? Was it in the speakers or in the hearers? John Gill suggests or gives us an option that the miracle was in the hearers. The apostles were speaking one language, in other words, they were speaking Greek or Aramaic, and then the hearers heard multiple languages. I've heard that theory. I don't believe it for a minute because... Most speaking in tongues in the Bible is the, the speakers that are speaking the unknown language that they don't understand. And the other option is not that the miracle was in the hearers, but the miracle was in the speakers. John Gill affirms that. The NIV Study Bible affirms that, and I do too. Here's a quote from John Gill. It was not one language only which was spoken by the apostles, which men of different languages heard and understood as if it were their own. For then the miracle was, must have been in the hearers and not in the speakers. And the cloven tongues as a fire should rather have sat on them than on the disciples. In other words, the tongues of fire should have come on the hearers, not on the disciples. And these men be said to be filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The hearers should be said to be filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit rather than the speakers, the disciples of Christ. So I think that's a slam dunk, folks. The miracle was not in the hearers. The miracle was in the speakers. When you speak in tongues, it's a miracle. Now, here's some more detail on this. John Gill points out that some options of how the speaking in unknown tongues was done. It could be one brother spoke one language, and then another brother spoke another language. Or it could be one brother spoke one language, and then that same brother switched to another language. Or, this is what I say, it could be a combination of those. It could be people speaking one language and switching, or it could be just one brother speaking one language and another brother speaking another language. We don't know. I... I recall with great pleasure that one time I had a Bible study in my dorm room at the University of South Carolina, and there was a transfer from Bob Jones University. In South Carolina, you all know about Bob Jones University. We all do. It's very hyper-fundamentalist and very anti-charismatic. Well, this guy was in this room, and everybody was charismatic, and we were praying in, in unknown languages, and this guy's just sitting there watching this, you know. <laughs> and I had a And I had a friend there who was speaking in tongues next to me, and I remember his name. I'm, I'm not going to tell you his name. And I remember thinking to myself, my gosh, that guy sounds like he's speaking Latin. So I stopped praying, and I started listening to him. I said, my gosh, that guy sounds like he's talking Latin. And all of a sudden, that Bob Jones guy, he says, my gosh, who is this guy, the Pope? He heard it too. So you see, sometimes unknown languages can be known languages, I think. I got another interesting story about that. I was in China several years ago, and there was this Catholic woman who was coming to our Sunday night meetings, and she used to live in the Ukraine. And she said she went to a meeting one time, and I'm sure it was a Catholic charismatic meeting, but she didn't understand all that. She said she went to a meeting, and she heard somebody speaking in perfect Ukrainian, and she said the guy didn't know Ukrainian. How is this possible? Well, she just tucked it away and didn't understand it, and when we we were going through... First Corinthians, 
chapter by chapter, and we got to that part about speaking in tongues, and it 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 stroked her memory. So she asked me, she said, please come over and explain something to me. She said, explain. And she gave me the story. She said, I don't understand what happened. Well, there was a case guy was listening in a, in a known language. So I, that's just in my small experience. I've heard of people speaking in tongues in a known language. Most of the time, I believe it's an unknown language to the hearer. But I, there's nothing that says it can't be a known language to the hearer. All right, so we go to verse 7. And we're going to uh, take seven verses 7 through 11 in Acts 2. And they were astounded, that's the crowd, and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? And Galileans don't speak a bunch of foreign languages. They didn't have a lot of burlet schools up there. How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own language. Now, what makes this passage mean a lot to me? Because I like to read ancient Near Eastern history, and I've spent a lot of time with geography. I like geography. I don't think you can understand the scriptures very well without it. So all these places mean something to me, and they probably don't to the average reader. So I'm going to go through and show you how far these people had come from and how far the gospel was getting spread out. And that's, by the way, is another reason why we have a special instance here of people speaking in tongues and it being understood by people because these people were proselyte people were visitors from foreign places and they're going to hear the gospel then they're going to go back home and preach the gospel it's going to spread the gospel miraculous seeding of the church if you will but that's a that's a one-off situation but anyway let's look at where these people were from parthia that's southern russia between black sea cat and the caspian sea maybe east of the caspian sea also out there beyond the Persian Empire, north of the Persian Empire. Medes, as in northern Persia, present-day Iran. Elamites, as in southern Persia, present-day Iran. Uh, Elam is where Susa was. That's where Daniel finished his career, where he died there, probably. Media, Ekbektana is the capital of Media. That's very famous in ancient Near Eastern history. Those who live in Mesopotamia, we move west now across the Tigris River. We're in the Mesopotamian Valley. That's where present-day Iraq is. Then we go further west. We end up in Judea. We know where that is. And then we go north and west, and we end up in Cappadocia, which is the eastern end of the Anatolian Peninsula, present-day Turkey. Pontus, people came from Pontus. That's north on the northern shore of, the, of Anatolia, present-day Turkey, and the, the southern end of the Black Sea, if you want to look at it that way. Asia, which is the western end of the Anatolian Peninsula. That's where the Romans had a province, which they called Asia. That's why they called it Asia, Asia Minor. Phrygia, which is a little bit east of Asia, right there in the western part of Anatolia. And Pamphylia, which is the southern little promontory that sticks off of the Anatolia, where Tarsus was, Paul's stomping grounds. Egypt, you all know where Egypt is. Libya, right to the west of Egypt on the southern Mediterranean coast. And Libya, of course, had a famous town there called Cyrene or Cyrene, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I'll look that one up. Either way, Cyrene. Uh, people came from there, and visitors from Rome. We all know where Rome was. And we noticed that the crowd consisted not only of devout Jews, but also proselytes. There were two kinds of proselytes. There was a proselyte of righteousness, those are people who completely converted to Judaism, who kept all of the Torah, including circumcision. They were circumcised, and they were entered into the Jewish faith. They were also proselytes of the gate. They didn't have to be, they didn't have to conform to all of the Torah. They didn't have to be circumcised, but they did have to conform to the seven laws of Noah. 
Number one, don't worship idols. Number two, don't blaspheme God. Number three, don't murder. Number four, don't fornicate. Number five, don't steal. Number six, don't tear a limb from a living animal. And number seven, don't fail to establish the rule of law. So I think most of us could probably qualify as proselytes of the gate. That's a, that's a side note here. The point is, is that there was a ton of folks hearing the gospel, the magnificent acts of God in their own language. And you know that what was included in the magnificent acts of God was the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, the essence of the gospel. You know they were hearing that. And you know they went back and told all these places that I just mentioned. They told everybody, this man Jesus came from heaven and is died on the cross and, is, and, and can release us from our sins. No wonder the church spread like wildfire at the beginning because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And that, my friends, is the only way it's going to happen today. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by cessationism. Oh, I, I left out one. Th I'm not finished yet. Verse 11, also people came from Crete. That's that long island that's south of the Aegean Sea or south and east of Greece. And Arabs, Arabs were... In present-day Syria, all down uh, and through Jordan, which is right east of the Jordan River, right east of Israel, all the way down through Jordan, keep going down through Jordan, then you end up in the, you cross over a little bit, you end, well, you end up down in the Sinai Peninsula eventually, as you get down to the Gulf of Aqaba and the Red Sea, and then if you keep going to the east of the Red Sea, you end up in present-day Saudi Arabia. I don't know, now of course, I don't know if there were people from way down in Saudi Arabia, Probably Arabia was Arabia, what they call Arabian Nabatea, which was from Mount Sinai up to Damascus, you know, in the area east of the Jordan River, but in, and west of Mesopotamia, in the desert there. Anyway, I go through all that geography not only because I like geography, but because it just shows how many people were affected by this falling of the Holy Spirit. Now we go down to Acts 2, verses 12 through 13. They, that's the crowd, were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? But some sneered and said, they're full of new wine. Well, now, there were skeptics of this miracle, as they always are. There are always people who are skeptical of miracles. Rationalist atheist types and also Christian quasi-deist types who don't believe in miracles today and who call people who do miracles today fringe wingdings. Are you listening, Todd Friel, Atlanta, Georgia? So there were skeptics here, and they sneered. Now, there were three ways that, could have been, that these skeptics could have been answered. Peter's going to use one of them. One way is when they say they're full of new wine. There was no new wine there because this was June, early June, and the grapes hadn't come in yet for the new wine to be made yet. Now, Adam Clark says, therefore, that could not have been what the sneers were saying. John Gill says the sneers were saying that, and that shows how stupid they were. So... I don't know, but Peter doesn't use that argument. And, and, and also, the NIV margin says calls it sweet wine, and there could have been sweet wine from a previous vintage there. And so I'm not really sure we can nail the snares for using the wrong kind of, for saying that new wine was there when the grapes weren't there yet. So we won't use that argument against the snares. Another snare is, another argument against the snares is, hey, you drink wine. Whether it's new wine or sweet wine, you drink wine, they get you drunk, and that makes you able to speak in languages that everybody can understand. Come on. What, a, what bar have you ever been in that had that happen? That's just plain stupid. That would have been a good argument, in my humble opinion, for Peter to use. But he didn't use it later on we'll, in his Pentecostal sermon, which we'll take up in the next audio. He says, hey, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, and people don't get drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. So the, the sneers were full of it. I bet if John MacArthur and his fellow cessationists were there, I wouldn't be surprised if they'd sneer at it too. Now, maybe that's a little harsh, but hey, somebody who gets on YouTube 
and publicly when called publicly says that charismatics have done no good for the body of Christ and then when it's called on it by Michael Brown who is a charismatic and he doubles down on his accusation on his libel or excuse me he was speaking so it was his slander his slander that no charismatic ever did anything good for the body of Christ Has you ever heard of operation blessing i think that was a charismatic that did that but anyway Folks, we need the miracle miraculous in the church of Jesus Christ. And we don't need the miraculous being clouded up by the stupidities of the charismatic movement that, that just gives ammunition and fodder to people like John MacArthur. The faith message quasi-Christian science nonsense. The prophetic the prophetic movement that prophesies 99% of what they prophesy never comes to, to, to pass. And all the other excesses. The new apostolic reformation, the spirit dancing, the grave sucking, the fire tunnels, and you name it. It's one reason I got out of the charismatic movement. I'm telling you, we need miracles today. Miracles get people saved, and I want to see the gospel spread across the face of this world, and it ain't going to be done with Presbyterian seminaries, folks. That ain't going to get the job done. Not there's anything wrong with Presbyterian seminaries except for the infant baptism part. Nothing wrong with that, but... If we want to see the gospel spread, you better rely on the Holy Spirit. And why do you think the devil gets all this all this clutter, all this distraction? Why does he produce that? By deceiving people like Todd Bentley seeing Emma and all that stuff. It's so that people will react against it and say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, that's a tragedy, folks. Charismatics need to guard their flank from extremists so that people like John MacArthur will not have anything to shoot at. So that we can all get together and spread the gospel. That's enough of my screed for this audio. We'll start with verse 14 and Acts 2 next time and take up Peter's Pentecostal sermon. I hope you stay tuned for that and I hope you enjoyed this audio.